0: The formalization of artisanal mining in the DRC will pave the way to creating a transparent and ethically responsible mining supply chain. Furthermore, it will help to curb illegal mining activities, lessen the impact on the environment, and help the country achieve its sustainability goals. Never before has this been more important as international businesses are looking to secure commodity supply responsibly for their own electric vehicle needs as part of the emerging electric vehicle boom today's session will explore strategy and best practices to ensure transparency in the drc's mining sector and joining me to discuss this topic is three experts firstly i'd like to introduce dr dorothy barman paulie she is a business ethics scholar and human rights advocate she received her phd in economics from the university of zurich In her scholarly work, she links the interdisciplinary academic discourse on global governance with the practical implementation challenges of corporations as political actors. She currently teaches at HEC Lausanne and works with the Center on Business and Human Rights at Stern School of Business at New York University. Dr Dorothy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd love to hear some of your opening views on our session that we're going to be discussing.
1: Laura, thanks for having me, I have to update on my CV, I'm actually um, also directing the Geneva Center for Business Human Rights, which is a new institution at the Geneva School for Economics and Management and together with NYU Stern, where I'm the research director of the NYU Stern Center for Business Human Rights, we're currently the two only institutions at business schools in the world that focus on human rights and i'm excited about today's session because the mission of those two institutions is to challenge and empower um business leaders to advance human rights in corporate practice so it's fantastic that today on this platform i'll get to engage with practitioners and the audience will be mostly practitioners as well so i'm keen to bridge between our academic research and Um, the actual applied human rights world in the field. Um, We got interested in this topic in the summer of 2019 as it became clear that electric vehicles are a key element in the strategy to transition to clean energy and um, clean mobility. And uh, over the course of the past couple of years, a number of governments have pledged to uh, only allow electric vehicles on the roads, a number of Um, car manufacturers have um, uh, outlined the future with predominantly electric vehicles and from a human rights perspective this development meant more mining um, and more mining for critical battery minerals and of course cobalt is uh, particularly interesting since more than two-thirds of the world's cobalt production comes from the democratic republic of the congo and um, there are Uh, a number of reports that outline severe human rights risks in mining in the DRC. So that um, dichotomy between on the one hand, you know, plans to save the planet, and on the other hand, the need for critical battery minerals with many human rights challenges, um, encouraged us to look into potential solutions um, for sourcing cobalt responsibly from the DRC. And with this, I became interested in these formalization projects, which I do believe are a viable way forward in terms of addressing some of those systemic human rights challenges, including mind safety issues, including uh, child labor issues. I think these are the two most important risks that um, all companies
0: across the entire supply chain should be concerned about. Excellent, Dorothy, thank you so much. Interesting views to kick us off, I love it. So I'd also like to introduce uh, my second panelist, Indigo Ellis. Indigo is an Associate Director of Africa Matters with focus on Central and Southern Africa. She specializes in advising the mining, energy and financial services sector. Indigo has particularly has particular proficiency in ESG risk and supply chain management. Prior to joining Africa Matters, Indigo led the Africa research team at global risk analytics company Verisk Maplecroft. Now based in London, she was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. Indigo holds an MSc from the in Theory and History of International Relations and a BA in French and History. Indigo speaks French and Spanish. She is also an honorary member of the Congolese UK Chamber of Commerce. Indigo, thank you so much for joining us today. I hand the floor over to you to share some opening views on our session today.
2: Thank you so much, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Thank you very much. I'm I'm only honored to be on this panel and discussing such a crucial um, topic such as formalization programs around artisanal and small scale mining for cobalt in DRC. Um, ultimately, as part of um, the work that we do at Africa Matters, we, we, through our three main service lines, stakeholder engagement, business intelligence, including reputational due diligence, and then ESG advisory, we've worked with um, the mining sector since our founding in 1997 to try and really help with regards to these types of issues. Obviously, um, we've discussed um, the human rights issues that are endemic with 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 regards to small scale and artisanal mining in the cobalt sector, and we can help with anything from kind of ESG audits, risk mitigation frameworks, and really alongside the a lot of the um, kind of guidance that we'll be talking about today from a regulatory perspective. So the economic, um, the OECD OECD due diligence guidance, for example. Um, I think the timing of this program is really, really crucial. Um, Formalization of ASM in the cobalt sector has been in the works since 2002 with the mining code in DRC. But right now, this conversation is so critical. As Dorothy has mentioned, we are seeing kind of rise in um, electric vehicle sales. In 2018 to 2019, there was a 40% year-on-year increase in EV sales. I think also COVID-19, we can't ignore that kind of exogenous um, environment that we're in at the moment, it's really laid bare the issues that have been exposed in artisanal and small scale mining globally. There's now time to reset. There is new momentum behind achieving transparency in cobalt supply chains. And the growth in global demand for cobalt really sets us up nicely to be able to be having these conversations. And as a practitioner, Um, and as a kind of advisor to mining companies and um, end users across the cobalt supply chain. I'm really glad to be here to be able to have this conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Indigo. And I think I couldn't agree more with you when you said now is really the time for us to be talking about this and and for change to happen. So, so excited that we bring in this session to the DRC markets. So last but not least, I would like to introduce my third panelist to the session today. James Nicholson James is head of corporate responsibility at Trafigura with a turnover of over 150 billion US dollars Trafigura is one of the world's leading physical commodities trading and logistics groups In 2010 James joined Trafigura in order to help establish a corporate affairs department Areas of focus at the present day include developing and driving the group's responsibility and transparency policies worldwide For ensuring that supply chain and operating impacts are managed responsibly and for the group's growing stakeholder engagement program. James is also a board member of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. James, again, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love to hear your views on the session.
3: Thanks um, so much, Laura, and and really great to be having this conversation. Um, As I think everyone has mentioned, um, the risks that we're talking about are just so profound and fundamental and and there is such an urgent need to, to step up to the plate um Trafigura has some experience in in respect of formalization of ASN cobalt um with the Matoshi pilot project that we started back in 2018 and and indeed there was so much learnt from that um one of the reflections frankly is is that actually very straightforward and and targeted interventions can have such a big impact. And and the interventions we made at that particular project um, led to a place where I I guess within the controlled area, um, we saw zero fatalities. We saw um, a considerable number of um, man hours being worked with with no lost time injuries. Um, We saw women working comfortably on the site where previously they could have been chased off. Um, The interventions we made in respect of health made sure that the environment itself was was one where people returned um, because they knew that they were going to be looked after and fundamentally they knew they were going to go home safely at the end of every day. Um, As we look to the future, we've got some exciting projects that um, I'm happy to talk about today and and, uh, particularly in respect of our relationship with Entreprise General de Cobalt, EGC, um, the state owned marketing entity that will focus exclusively on DRC ASM, Artisanal Small Scale Mined Cobalt. But uh, thank you so much for the opportunity and looking forward to the conversation.
0: Brilliant James, thank you so much and and you bring some valuable sharing information to the session, especially in connection with Enterprise to Cobalt and also the Mutashi project. So I'm looking forward to hearing more from you and from the rest of our panel. So I think there's lots of things we can delve into Um, and and Indigo, I think I'll start with you. You Mm know, as we've mentioned, the, the global demand for battery metals, including cobalt specifically, is rapidly increasing alongside the growth in electric vehicle cars manufactured. So currently, I'd love to get your views on what are the main legal restrictions in place or reputational concerns for importing countries when it comes to sourcing cobalt from the DRC? Sure. So
2: I think um I think first the most important thing for us to just discuss is is to set the scene. So with regards to the type of um risks or the type of risk exposure that companies are considering and sourcing countries are considering when um when sourcing cobalt from the DRC. So we have across the environmental, social and governance aspects. So these issues are things that have been mentioned, but I think it's really important to just lay them out. So environmentally, we have things like ecosystem degradation, habitat loss, poor land management. Socially, we have child labour, forced labour, dangerous working conditions that we've spoken about. We also have security force and human rights violations and sexual exploitation. Obviously, we have issues that, that have been seen in the artisanal mining space. And a lot of sourcing companies that we that we work with are directly affected. So just to take an example, um, last year, 41 people died in an accident at the Komoto Copper mine in which um, a Glencore subsidiary, Katanga Mining, owes a 75 percent share. And that came from illegal um, incursions of artisanal miners onto a commercial mining space. So that kind of leads us into thinking about governance as well. So we have illicit trade, tax evasion and corruption. And I think it's really important that we start talking about how a safe and responsible artisan mining sector can be a vector for development and post-COVID economic recovery for millions of people, um, not just in DRC, but globally as well. So it can really contribute to short-term recovery from the impacts of COVID-19 and kind of function as an important um, stopper against ESG risk exposure for companies when operating in DRC. So these are the kind of issues that companies are dealing with and importing countries are dealing with. And I really think um, that some of the main legal restrictions that are already in place um, are being dealt with. So there are things like from a company level, a lot of electric vehicle producers have ruled out sourcing artisanal cobalt. A good example of that is BMW. Um, and it's really forcing governments to implement, um, firstly, from the kind of producer countryside formalisation, but then also from a regulatory side from importing countries. So the European Commission next uh, month will in fact be publishing a report um, that will suggest that a t- titling market for responsibly sourced cobalt will be coming in. And they'll be bringing in um, and it's rumored to be bringing in a a due diligence a mandatory due diligence on cobalt supply chains for batteries sold in the EU markets in the near future. Um, So it will look something like the EU conflict minerals regulation that's already um, in place for 3TG metals. And if we combine this with, as we've discussed and as we'll continue to discuss, I'm sure, the growth in demand for um, cobalt. So this is looking like by 2030, these EU economies will need to secure more than 64,000 tonnes of ethically sourced cobalt beyond these existing supply chain constraints that they have. So this is a volume of metal worth around 3.2 billion US dollars at current prices. And that's just for the growth in electric vehicles, let alone if we're talking about other cobalt usages as well. So this, this kind of run on the metals price is prompting mining companies to seek new reserves from Australia and to the deep sea. So I'm really hoping that by talking about these formalization programs by, um, I'm really looking forward to hearing James talk about, more about the EGC, for example, um, we really have a, a kind of a, a first starter, first mover advantage to be able to shore up supra- supply of artisanally um, source cobalt from the DRC and make sure that DRC um, and artisanally mined cobalt from the DRC is not left behind in this global transition because of regulatory pressures from um, institutions like the European Commission. So I think there there are there's increasing legal um, constraints on artisanally sourced cobalt coming from a regulatory level and I think formalisation programmes are really at the forefront of being able to make sure that no one is left behind with regards to um the artisanal and small scale mining communities in drc that really have a fundamental part to play in the growth of evs as, and um the green transition as a whole
0: thank you indigo the the numbers you've quoted are absolutely staggering uh, but not surprising and I, and i think you you've really really got to the crux of the matter to say you know let's leave no one behind and let's let everyone in the country benefit from from their resources uh, and what that means for, for global demand for electric vehicles so thank you for sharing that with me i think james important to the conversation is is to contextualize the drc in terms of where it currently stands so can you tell me about its current role in global cobalt supply and what your forecast is for the next sort of 10 to 15 years and perhaps as part of that, you can outline existing parameters that are in play in country that may actually affect this, either negatively or positively.
3: Sure, Laura. Um, thank you. And perhaps perhaps it would be helpful just, just to talk through the role of um, EGC uh, that I mentioned just a moment ago, because I think that it, it's important to reflect on, on the challenge. And, and I think um, Indigo has done that um, really very adequately. Um, but also to talk about the opportunity, and and there's some really, um, we're, we're I believe at a really exciting juncture right now, um, and that lies within that um, EGC uh, proposition. Um, I think that if we look at look at the market as a whole, accepting the points on demand, and I'll definitely come back to that. Um, the market itself has been too slow to respond to these these considerable challenges, um, with the. DRC government intervening um, in such a targeted manner through the establishment of EGC, um, as I say, we we have that great opportunity. So for those unaware, EGC was set up by government decree, and the role of EGC is to purchase, process, and and sell any and all cobalt produced by artisanal miners or companies involved in ASM in the DRC. Now, while operations have yet to commence, Trafficura entered into a commercial agreement with EGC um, end of October last year, Um, and we're the only company so far to have done so. And our key objective um, is to underpin confidence in EGC COBOL, so ensuring that a number of critically important controls are introduced, and and those controls will address, for example, um, a safer and cleaner, more respectful um, formalized working environment we'll make sure that legitimate um, taxes, fees and royalties are paid to the state. So the state really stands to to benefit from this incredible resource um, and also to ensure that we have a traceable supply chain from from mine site to market. Now, um, all of these controls have been documented because um, um, that was a key thing, um, certainly from Traffickers' perspective, as, as we looked at this um, all, all the issues that we've we've already discussed is basically to say okay um what does good look like and and we could establish what good looks like through referring to a number of existing um standards in relation to artisanal mining elsewhere in the world um, but also because Trafficker has um run this pilot pro- project at Matoshi for a couple of years and we really have a very deep and, and practical understanding and so what we sought to develop with our um, colleagues at EGC was this responsible sourcing standard, um, and that aligns with DRC law, and it outlines in, in really clear terms what we're aiming for in, in this complex situation. Um, it also really helpfully provides a baseline for the market, so it represents what EGC, what the NGO pact, who's a, a key partner in this process, and Trafigura, believe to be effectively a comfort level that when reached and then importantly upheld um we that will ensure that that egc cobalt can be accepted into the legitimate value chain alongside cobalt of any origin and again to bring it strip it right back what's so important is to make sure that um asm cobalt is responsibly sourced that it isn't um it isn't um priced at a a differential It, it is just It is just responsibly sourced cobalt full stop um it can be accepted onto the market and critically the drc can therefore really benefit from this this massive wealth that it has um under its uh, soil
0: thank you very much james great contextualizing and we're definitely going to discuss um egc some more as we go through the conversation but i'd like to bring dorothy back and you know dorothy you through your organization you actually conducted a lot of research on the DRC's artisanal cobalt mining sector. You went to the DRC, you spent time there. I think you really got to understand uh, this particular market. So I'd love to hear your views, Dorothy, on the short and long-term solutions of mitigating human rights risks in the Congolese supply chain, specifically, obviously, with regards to cobalt.
1: Thanks, Laura. So in all our research um, focused on global supply chains, we always believe that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And in the cobalt supply chain, clearly the greatest human rights risks lie in the deepest layers of the supply chain down um, to the artisanal miners. And I think um, and that's something I'd like to compliment to what Indigo outlined. I think it's important to understand the business reality in the DRC and that ASM is just part of everything and all supply chains. So. Sourcing exclusively from large-scale mining sites, as some companies claim to do, I think is really wishful thinking. Once you've been there, you understand that ASM is everywhere. There are so many points where ASM cobalt can be mixed into um, the LSM cobalt. So it's important to understand that sort of sorting between LSM and ASM Cobalt in the DRC context is just not possible and therefore solutions to the human rights risks in the ASM sector need to be found. And uh, again, in our context at the Geneva Center and by Stern Center, we are always focused on solutions and supporting companies and making practical progress. And so for me, the formalization projects um, that have been set up in the Cobalt context were particularly exciting. I was uh, lucky to be able to visit two of those sites and also compare those two sites. So I visited Mutashi and I also visited Kasulo at the time of my visit in September 2019. Those two were the only active running formalization sites in the cobalt context. And from seeing those two sites, it became clear that formalization also means different things to different people. And uh, one of my main conclusions in the report, which I will show now, it was published in the World Economic Forum's white paper series, um, is that we need to develop standards, standards for responsible ASM cobalt from the DRC. We need to define what formalization means, what good looks like, and what responsible ASM cobalt should contain. And so, um, the development that James just described, um, namely the uh, launch of responsible sourcing standards through the Entreprise Générale du cobalt uh, is very exciting to us because it felt like research recommendations were being put into practice directly. Um, uh, with Upon the initiative of the Congolese government and Congolese actors and um, those EGC sourcing standards are based on the uh, attested and approved model. Um, With the support of traffic many of the lessons from Mutashi were brought into the development of the EGC standard. And uh, for us, it was most interesting to understand how could Mutashi be scaled and replicated. And now there are plans to do exactly that, to scale um, the standards that have been tested and tried in the Mutashi context. To many more sites um, and we think this is a positive development that uh, should be strengthened further and it's urgent as we've heard from indigo given um, the surge of interest in cobalt we've already seen the price going up since the beginning of the year and so clearly supporting the congolese initiative through the ETC, i think is the short-term objective but there also, you ask for both short and longer term objectives. Longer term, I think we need a more comprehensive strategy to bring the estimated 200,000 miners in Lualaba province to sites that are compliant with very basic standards. So it's important to establish a model, a model that works, and then to grow that model so that more and more artisanal miners have access to these compliant sites. But I also believe we need a comprehensive strategy for the many miners that will initially not be part of these programs, um, that will continue working in mines in a very informal way. And um, for those, I think we need many more supply chain actors supporting formalization efforts. Um, And I'm also thinking of uh, aid institutions, um, the World Bank, and many others that need to map all the informal sides and figure out a comprehensive strategy to support them becoming compliant eventually.
0: Thank you, Dorothy. James, does EGC's strategic objectives sort of fall in line with some of the things that Dorothy has been saying? And, you know, maybe you can share with us what, what are some of those biggest strategic objectives for EGC? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people here that could Benefit from this. So, how how do you see that playing out, and and maybe give us a little bit more context of how Traffiquer is actually involved with EGC?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, There's there's a lot there to unpack. Um, (laughs) I think, um, yeah. Again, as part of that, I guess the, the key question is to practically how does this how does this work? Because. Putting together a well-informed standard is is one thing, but actually seeing it through is is something completely different. And and Dorothy has 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 talked right to the heart of the issue. You know, EGC has the EGC has its own standard, but where that um, where those EGC sites are not being developed, then then what happens? Um, an easy response is of course we're, we're talking about a transient population, a population that could easily move across to mine copper as principal, and, and we'll all be aware of um, uh, the price of copper right now and, and forecasts again for the future which are exciting but only make artisanal copper production all the more enticing. Um, so um, we have many different different challenges but um, the EGC, let's, if we were to look at EGC sites specifically, and there's one particular site that is, is in the offing at the moment, and we're excited about that, um, the EGC standard would apply to all ASM sites, um, the cooperatives um, that those individuals work in, um, to EGC themselves and to buyers such as, as Trafigura. Um, and obviously the key question is, uh, great, how will this system, how will that standard be uphold? upheld well egc and and staff from the ngo pact would be present on each and every production site Um, all production would be bagged and tagged uh, with tamper proof seals Um, we'll see uh, payments moving to electronic form as we need to move beyond cash taking cash out of the system and then data around that will be uploaded to the blockchain platform which would give if you like a window in um, from uh, the downstream perspective to see how how the project is progressing. Um, The the material, EGC Cobalt, will be traceable effectively from mine to market. Um, And then we would have, we have appointed a responsible sourcing assessor um, known as Kumi to conduct site assessments against that standard each and every quarter. So we're taking an extremely cautious approach. those assessments that we conduct would be made available to the downstream customers of, of Trafigura um, and um, I think at the, at the moment there's so much emphasis on it under under the current system whether it's copper or any metal or cobalt emphasis on conducting really sensible smart due diligence but really what makes this project different is that we're bringing in an investor into the mix. So Trafficura is prepaying, pre-financing this production. And that pre-finance is specifically tagged, if you like, to operational improvements on the ground. So the finance can only be released if certain conditions have been met. And and clearly, we're watching um, that investment extremely closely. So it's not just a buyer looking from the sidelines in. Making sure that um, the standards, you know, that, that that due diligence is done. It's actually we're stepping in, we're rolling up our sleeves, we're getting directly involved. Frankly, that's the only way that we're going to get change, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say, because for years there have been, you know, the, the OECD have been have been pushing their due diligence standard, and rightfully so, it's an in- incredible tool. Um, but the cost of meeting the, the standards that the market requires um are simply too high um you need that investment so you do need companies like trafigura to step up to the plate um to invest uh, to be willing to um I, I guess to uh to roll with the situation we, we know that um we have to get comfortable with continuous improvement that we've got a long way to go um but this is the only way that change is really going to happen. Um, and, and, and so I really, you know, I, I look forward to Trafigura um, Pact uh, and EGC really getting involved with that first site, but then building out from that to 10, 15, 20 different sites in future. Um, and that 200,000 um, population of artisanal cobalt diggers at the moment, you know, I, I, I hope that we can we can capture them Within this program, and and clearly benefit also their many dependents. Um, I find it immensely exciting, but I'm to be absolutely clear, um, there are, there are some massive challenges to overcome first.
0: Undoubtedly, James, a, a game changer for the industry if if we get it right. But I think with Traffic impacts, and um, you know the credibility and the objectives are on the right place. So I've got every confidence of of seeing EGCB successful. Um, Indigo, you know, I think a very important aspect to this conversation that I'd like to bring in is if you think there are other strategies that the DRC government can put in place to create an attractive, competitive fiscal and legal ecosystem that maybe actually incentivizes artisanal and small scale miners to engage in formal and safe trade of minerals.
2: Yeah, thanks, Laura. That's that's perfect. I mean, that was exactly what I was thinking about when James was, was talking about how transient these um, artisanal mining communities can be um, on price dependency. So, I mean, as we've mentioned, copper prices are, are where they are. And so there's a real onus on the DRC government to match what they're doing with EGC and, and kind of roll it out towards artisanal mining more broadly across the country. And I think a lot of these formalization programs, as James has mentioned, they do need buy-in from companies to be able to put that investment in uh, of both, you know, funds and um, time in order to make these work. And the government really needs to be able to support them by um, putting in place some kind of fiscal and legal requirements in order to um, facilitate their creation. So I think there's a there's a real um impetus on the drc government to start doing that i think there's in terms of what actually they could do i think firstly lessening um, the administrative and financial burden on illegal artisanal trade Um, so as i mentioned uh, at the beginning about the 2002 mining code the special um, areas that are delineated for artisanal mining in order to receive a license um, to be able to exploit these areas, which obviously in practice, we know, uh, doesn't always happen, or doesn't rarely happens, in fact. Um, and that is because this licensing is so difficult and kind of costly and, and burdensome to to achieve. Um, so I think that's something that the DRC government can work to, to, to make better, make more attractive. I think there's a, a kind of a hurdle in so much as um, obviously a lot of the processes that the DRC government puts in place from a provincial level are not matched at a national level, um, and that's something just to do with governance in the mining sector as a whole. And that needs to be um, reconsidered if we're thinking about what's happening in Lualaba versus in other uh, Katangan provinces. I think um, there's also some some issues around access to land and geological prospecting um, around the issuing of licences. So there's obviously a formal kind of um, process when uh, an area that is uh, kind of delineated for artisanal small scale mining is then passed on, can be passed on to a company and licensed to an official um, LSM, shall we say. And the kind of processes that ASM has to go through, even if they are licensed and, and legally allowed to mine that land are not quite where they need to be with regards to encouraging um, encouraging that to happen. I think there's an area also around technical and vocational education and training that the DRC government would, be, would do well to introduce among artisanal small-scale mining communities alongside formalization programs. Um, So information on safe working practices, more efficient and effective mining techniques, and that's kind of to reduce these not only social uh, negative social impacts, but also environmental impacts, which are really important in order to protect the communities in which this artisanal mining is happening. Um, I think support of equipment and leasing facilities, processing centers, um, improving the capacity and strength and collaboration of institutions and governments. I mean, I could go on for, forever on this topic, um, but ultimately it's about collaboration. It's about monitoring, enforcement, education um, and better collaboration between these type of um, formalization programs and the local communities and um, local government in order to make these things happen across the artisanal small scale mining community, not just in cobalt.
0: Oh, thank you, Indigo, clearly there is so much work to be done in this area, but it's, it's conversations like the, this and, and the work that EGC and Trafigura is doing that are, that are taking us in the right way. So it's good to know that you know, the DRC is, is certainly going to be a leading country in, in making change in this regard. I think, uh, Dorothy, you know, we've spoken a lot about the role of governments in this whole process, but what role do you think larger mining companies and other strategic role players and stakeholders have in leading the way and involving artisanal mining for a transparent and ethical industry of battery metals in the DRC?
1: Uh, Thanks, Laura. We've seen in our research in all kinds of industries that it is really the lead firms that have to take the lead initially. Um, They have the most skin in the game. (laughs) They're directly there. Um, They can influence conditions. So um, clearly they have to take a leadership role in in, uh, driving a transition towards responsible sourcing practices. And um, yet I I don't think they can do this alone, they're part of a chain and um, in our research it was fascinating to see, in the, to see the proactive role that the commodity trading company took, in this case Trafigura, to uh, initiate and set up this pilot project through a, a large mining um, company, in this case that was Shimav, um, in the Mutashi context. and. Um, Overall, we believe that to drive change, we need to figure out formulas for sharing responsibility. So no single actor can all do it alone, that there needs to be concerted efforts, joining forces, and then um, coordination um, across the entire chain to accept the standards, um, improve the standards over time, um, support the implementation of the standards, and clearly the government has a role to play here as we heard from indigo um but it, it's this coming together
0: of different actors that is so critical for actual success thanks and uh, thanks dorothy you know james both yourself and, and dorothy have mentioned the Matoshi project uh, quite extensively so don't you want to give our audience a little bit more background about the project and maybe some of the the major lessons learned um that you'll take forward with egc
3: how long have you got, Laura? Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, so, yeah, for the, for the benefit of the audience, I think um, it's worth just giving the context. So um, Trafigura entered into a, a marketing agreement uh, with CHEMAF. Um, this was at the end of, I think, 2017 from memory, a, a key component of that agreement related to responsible sourcing. So as standard, we work with our suppliers um, to ensure that uh, their operating procedures uh, meet quite um, quite stringent requirements now um the interesting thing about chemaf was that they have access to about 90 concessions across the drc for copper and cobalt and um a a concession of particular interest and for those who know the drc well that that they will have heard i'm sure of the Matoshi concession because it's been mined since i think 1904 for gold for copper um for cobalt and the fact is the concession is right on the edge of the Colwese Col- Col- city. And so within the concession boundaries, which extend to 40 square kilometers, you've got a significant population of people. Now those people are engaged in um, um, uh, farming, it's uh, so a small-scale farming, um, buying and selling products, you know, little markets, etc. and um, but e- equally there are thousands engaged in artisanal mining, um, both on the Matoshi concession and, and elsewhere. Now as a as a buyer of of cobalt, um, you know, I have to say when we looked at this particular opportunity, um, our immediate reaction was was I think like others, which is to say that we cannot tolerate um, any artisanal product product in a, in our chain. It's simply um, it's simply not acceptable. Um, and and I therefore I completely understand the position of of many in the industry, uh, because engaging with artisanal mi- miners is is a really challenging. Um, uh, business. But the fact is, they were there on the concession. They had been there for decades. Um, they they relied heavily on, on artisanal cobalt um, for their income, and they were selling the material illicitly off the concession to a fleet of buyers, and, and that's never going to um, satisfy anyone or you can seek to engage um, more, uh, more proactively with the community. So um, we, we developed a, a controlled area of the concession. And I say that very specifically because this is not to say that there wasn't a di- um, artisanal mining elsewhere on the concession, that did continue. But the controlled area of the concession, this pilot site that we developed um, was fenced. Um, we agreed that Chemaf would be the buyer Um, under certain conditions, and one of those included the fact that we had packed personnel on-site 24-7 to ensure that um, the standards that we we developed at the time, um, through our experience working with CHEMAF and engaging with many others, um, ensuring those standards were met. Now, in terms of simple interventions that I mentioned earlier, removing overburden, not allowing deep tunnels, not allowing... You know, lateral digging, etc. You you can you dramatically improve the safety situation because I'm afraid that people are are dying day in day out um, through descending some horrendous tunnels. And DRC law uh, does allow for that. I, I think the limit, safe limit, um, considered safe limit by DRC law is, is 30 meters. Well, for any one of us who have stood in a tunnel of 30 meters, I you know it's um, it is not a safe situation. Um, And all it takes is a small pebble to be kicked from the top to hit you on the head, and and you will certainly know it. Um, So not allowing deep tunnels was was just one of those simple interventions, providing potable water on site, um, ensuring that individuals were provided with PPE, helmets, for example, um, gloves, safety goggles um, to avoid um, eye injuries, for example. Um, latrines on site, you know, such a simple intervention, just super basic, but nonetheless, that meant, for example, that the site was cleaner, that the spread of disease was, was lessened. Um, so these types of learnings are, are really quite straightforward, um, to take away. Now with, with CHEMAF, one of the advantages we have was the material was exclusively processed in, in a, a single, um, refining unit. And therefore the material was segregated from material that was produced by mechanical means and we had to take that um we follow that route at the time because customers were nervous and we deal with some of the biggest names in the business um and you know while it was extremely positive that they were willing to accept artisanal material they, they wanted to know precisely what they were getting now um with egc our hope now in in all the groundwork that we're putting in around the, the the standard the controls the engagement taking opportunities like this um our hope is to ensure that actually that material will be taken from site and as i explained processed and sold into the value chain um and and the receiver can be comfortable they will know precisely what they're getting and they can track all the way back um so much of this is down to confidence and a big part of that is also the develop, again the developmental opportunity the confidence is one thing but knowing also that your the product that you're purchasing is fundamentally helping develop you know, people's lives and and the drc itself is enormously exciting so you know we have seen a sea change in attitude i've referenced that in um you know publicly before where buyers are knocking on the door where previously they wouldn't there are financiers knocking on the door traffic gear is privately held we rely on 60 billion dollars worth of finance each year for the first time we have banks coming to us saying we want to get involved in this project because we see the societal benefits um so yeah whether it's whether it's development finance whether it's traditional banks whether it's downstream market you know we see the conversation change, changing and i and i would hope that um viewers of this now would be, be you know if they haven't already um believed in what we're doing, that they'll start to see the potential. Um, because I believe it's, it's massively exciting and we're only doing the right thing.
0: You know,
1: right, Dan, may uh, I add two things which I believe contributed to the success of not just a standard on paper, but a standard that was actually implemented. First of all, I think the extraction method where overload was taken off and production for artisanal miners could start on day one actually supported greater earnings for the artisanal miners and given their difficult situation income really is a key to hold them on the site and uh, ensure that they accept the conditions on the site and if they can earn well under good conditions they will comply easier so then the standard is not just a paper tiger but actually something that's more accepted the uh, at Mutashi, I think, was what was also really critical is that the um, translation and the promotion of the standard wasn't only done through the uh, through PACT and the mining uh, company in Trafigura, but also through a cooperative that took a real leadership role. Um, they were called Komia Call, and so it felt like the standards are owned by the community that has been mining on the site for a very long time. And I think those two factors were critical for making something on paper real in everyday mining activities.
0: Thank you, Dorothy. I, I, I definitely wanted your perspective on that um, as sort of an objective person. So you jumped right in there, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, undeniably, Mutoshi is, is really really a wonderful site that de- demonstrates what can be done. So thank you both for sharing light on that. Indigo, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation again at this point and sure. talk a little bit about uh, blockchain. So, mm-hmm. and we've mentioned it already in this conversation, but let's unpack it a little bit more. So, you know, unlike large scale minds that have access to new technologies such as blockchain, what traceability models can be used uh, by artisanal miners to ensure chain of custody and transparency in order to respond to global standards, as well as uh, the OECD due diligence guidance?
2: Sure. So I think blockchain is a really exciting possibility. I, I think, um, you know, the it's not yet a silver bullet for supply chain traceability, um, but it's getting there. I think there are a few best practices that can be translated into um, the artisanal small scale mining um, perspective in order to ensure sustainable supply chains. And um, I think we've we've touched on a lot of those issues. I think Mutoshi got to a certain stage on a lot of these issues. And I think um, EGC, from my understanding of it, will also go further in some of these. Um, but I'll just run, th- run you through the kind of things that we look at when we talk to our clients. So I think. The most crucial thing is also a balanced panel of industry, government, and NGO representatives to be involved in any phases of a certification sli- scheme. So, this could be from initial design to compliance monitoring and enforcement. So, that we've spoken about just now at Matoshi. Um, we need multi tier certification systems. So, this is kind of allowing a difference. Uh, different levels of engagement and set of rules to member companies. So this is a kind of incentive to attract new industry players and improve performance of more experienced companies. So those kind of systems, they provide flexibility to both large and smaller mining scales. Obviously, at a minimum, there are a few certification criteria that should be drawn upon. So obviously, um, the guiding principles, the United Nations guiding principles, OECD due diligence, and also obviously compliance with international and national laws. This is where um, a lot of the issues that we were talking about with regards to um, depth of mining tunnels, for example, at a national level need to be looked at um, in order to ensure safety, safe working standards. Um, Obviously traceability, so beyond these kind of paper based labelling methods, which have historically been used. um, Pilot projects that are using digital technologies, so it can be um, the bag and tag method. So using QR codes, for example, but also blockchain. And I um, I think there are a few companies that are working very closely to try and integrate more blockchain into ASM. Um, And I think this mind to market approach is necessitating that blockchain gets integrated more into the mining, into the ASM sector. Um, Obviously, enforcement and compliance and due diligence is is always going to be a mainstay of any any traceability method, even if it's um, even if it's reliant on blockchain. Um, There's a company called Circular. Um, that operates, it's based in London, um, but they are doing some very interesting things around cobalt traceability. And in fact, anything um, that you can trace from a value chain perspective, they are working on, including waste management. Um, And I think they are really trying to get down to the artisanal level and bring in blockchain via the use of um, mobile technology. And they have um kind of less digital technology for different areas as well that are really it's a really interesting prospect so i i would recommend that um you look into that as well Um, but ultimately and i think this is the overwhelming um to, uh, thing of this of this or takeaway that I've had from this panel so far is scalability so the ability to take learnings from a project like Mutoshi and scale it out on a bigger level so with EGC um, bringing in all the kind of actors along the um, or stakeholders along that supply chain so be it from Dorothy's organizations doing the research and then um, James being able to integrate that into um, the way that EGC looks from from a trader perspective, I think this is all crucial to be able to scale these models and make sure that um, you know traceability can be implemented from an artisanal, small scale mining perspective.
0: Valuable insights there, Indigo. Thank you so much. You know james, we've we've now mentioned the response the responsible sourcing standards. It's obviously pivotal to the way this is unfold, you know the way this unfolds as we're going forward is that a a fixed document is that a working document where where things might change as more lessons are learned um you know what what are your thoughts around that with regards specifically to the standards
3: yeah and um the standard has to be a living document um we uh when the standard was launched in in march of this year we we were collectively very careful to to state that we believe this is um an importance of to mark in, in the sand if you like but that um while we are not we're not going to roll back we're not going to lessen the standards um we are going to we are for sure going to um consider how they can build out in future and i think just reflecting for example on on indigo's comments at the very start the ecological impacts have not been sufficiently um, touched on um, and, and addressed within the standard. Um, there are other um, health considerations that for sure can be um, better integrated and built into this. So, where would we like to go with the standard? From here, well, we launched the standard as, as with any, any business, um, we're working against type tight timelines we we hope very much that the first egc site will be live um mid uh, mid to late this this year so july august perhaps um now um, as as such we we went for it we've developed a standard we've launched that in march we've had a huge amount of feedback and and, and i would say predominantly good one of the comments has been around socialization of that standard um, and the fact that it needs to be better um, better understood, better socialized, and, and to engage on a on a multi-stakeholder dialogue effectively on, on how it can be improved. And you know what, if it can't be improved, fine. But nonetheless, I think stakeholders want to be a part of that journey. Um, that's, that's something that we take very seriously and, and I hope that um, in the in the coming weeks we'll be able to outline how that is how that is run as a process and and certainly I know that um Dorothy has some very clear ideas on that but yeah I would say right now um the um the standard itself is robust um it builds on great industry knowledge um PACT have been engaged in ASM formalization for years um as I said we, we have our pilot project um and, and good experience there. Um, we've had great impact from EGC. And but you know, I think most importantly right now, EGC, it's EGC's standard. It this is DRC built, um, and, and they're immensely proud of that. And um, they're open to improvements for sure. But the main thing is this is not the downstream dictating. This is this is DGC, uh, you know, this, this is grown by DRC, um, you know, an important DRC entity, EGC um and and so that's a great place to start. um and and hopefully, yeah, this the standard will will improve in in the coming years. and and this is a long- term agreement, right? The traffic gear is involved in in this project um for five years. So um you know we're we're going to grow and develop along with the standard itself.
0: Great answer. James, uh, you know, thanks. Dorothy, you've said how important the standards are. Um, and I know James has said you have some of, some views on some of the things he said. So what are your views, Dorothy, on the standards, the importance of them, what they mean for this, for this project in the DRC? Um, I think they're absolutely critical.
1: As I pointed out before, there were formalization projects in place that were implemented very differently, also um, had very different standards. And if there are different standards, it will be difficult to establish acceptance of ASM cobalt in the market, because downstream players are only confident and comfortable sourcing ASM cobalt if they know that it comes from a site that corresponds to a specific standard and not multiple standards, but there should be one common standard that defines responsible ASM in the cobalt context. And indeed now the um, with the EGC, uh, the Congolese, have. Uh, launched and um, they've taken the initiative and um, I think this is indeed, as James said, a good starting point to socialize and get further input and further refine and understand how a very large portion of the ASM miners can Benefit from the standard and can hopefully soon be working at compliance sites, but to set out um, sort of an objective of only if a mine site has reached this benchmark sourcing can start, I think is a really powerful message to the market and um, we shouldn't dilute this message Um, instead really strengthen the benchmark maybe refine it further, socialize it further, because of course, um, multi-stakeholder input increases the legitimacy of the standard, um, but ensure that this standard can be implemented. I think it'll require, again, concerted efforts of multiple stakeholders. And so rallying behind what has
0: been started, I think is, is, is the right place. Thank you, Dorothy. I think we are sort of coming to the close of our session. So it's been really engaging, stimulating, thoughtful. I really enjoyed it. I would like to ask each of my panelists some closing remarks on some of the key themes that have come out of our discussion today. Indigo, if I can start with you.
2: Uh, Sure, thank you. I think, um, ultimately, I, and I mentioned it in my previous response, but ultimately it's this issue of scalability. So it's this one common standard that we can hold and that each mine, as Dorothy has just said, each mine can can hit this one standard, this benchmark, and then we can use their artisanally mined um, uh, cobalt and enter it into the market in a sustainable way that allows for these mining communities to be able to, to enter into the market and for the Congolese people to, benefit from the reserves that they have in their own country. And I think this is the fundamental of what we've been getting at, is about creating a, a dialogue, a standard, everything that speaks to what these stakeholders are trying to achieve, we've got to bring everyone alongside us, be it from a practitioner sense, be it from a trader sense, be it from an end user sense, be it from communities on the ground and the Congolese government. And I think EGC is one step in the process to make that happen. And it's really exciting to be able to talk about it in a bit more detail and and hear from um, James and Dorothy about it. So thank you very much for this conversation.
0: Thank you, Indigo. James, if I can give you the floor and, and share with us some of those There's final remarks and thoughts about today's session.
3: Uh, Thank you, Uh, um, a tough one. Um, There were some really good stats um, that Indigo referred to at the start of the session. Um, We know that total cobalt demand is going to double to about 290,000 tons by 2030. The centrality of the DRC production itself is only going to grow. artisanal supply from egc will be a big part of, of production Um, it'll be on par with contributions from the largest fully mechanized mines. um uh, laura just to use one of your phrases um the egc project if you can call it a project um will be a game changer for the cobalt market um it could be even bigger, uh, an even bigger game changer if you like for the um for the millions of people who who um are working hard in in the artisanal setting um, worldwide to to actually ensure that um, that we succeed, we, we need the DRC government, we need companies from across the chain, we need civil society uh, to come together and, and and really get behind this um, the, you know, EGC cobalt. Um, uh, only then will this this immensely ambitious um, initiative actually um, you know deliver. Thank you. Thank you so much,
0: James and Dorothy, if I can end with yourself on on some of your closing remarks on on some of our discussion points today.
1: Yes, I will echo here my co panelists. The time to put solutions in place is now. But uh, while uh, I agree with everyone that EGC is such a great start, I'm also eager to follow the performance of the project, uh, if I may call it a project. So you need to carefully track how well it performs, um, and I will certainly accompany that process going forward, because indeed the ultimate benefit should be the mining communities and um, the socioeconomic benefits for those mining communities. And this is what we need to track carefully um, now before um, the EGC model is uh, implemented at those pilot sites. And then in six months, 12 months, 18 months to also then use the feedback um, from such surveys to refine the model further. But I think it's important to not lose uh, to have a to cast a close eye on how things are going for the next two
0: years <laughs> I'll certainly do that <laughs> this is not a thank you so much Dorothy and thank you to my my three panelists for their time today uh, I'm so excited and passionate about what we've shared and I, I can't wait to see what EGC and, and Trafigura do I'll be watching also with a close eye So thank you again, Uh, and I look forward to engaging with you forward as as this project, as we're calling it, takes off even more. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you.